Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. The following audio was recorded at the Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2016. If you have a Bible with you, and if you were to turn in it to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew chapter 14. This is the passage Terry will be speaking to us from. So we're beginning our reading um, at verse 14. So Matthew 14 and verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he told the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Sorry, you have to speak to us. Well, it's great to be here again and a great privilege to speak to those in ministry. I always feel it's a huge uh, privilege to do that. I pray I can be a blessing to you as I uh, take these sessions with you. Should we just pray right now? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege of, Lord, your call, knowing you've commissioned us, invited us to follow you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your promise to us, Lord, that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so, Father, we ask right now for the help 
and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Rest upon us. I pray we may hear more than my voice, but hear your voice, Lord, in our hearts. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we, in our reading, we find Jesus is attracting vast crowds, huge crowds pursuing him, euphoria, popularity, a growing reputation. But we find Jesus is particularly focused, actually, on the ones that he is shepherding. He's particularly focused on the Twelve. He's creating a new people in the midst of a very backslidden Israel. He's choosing out from that Israel a new company. It becomes very evident as you look at John 17, when Jesus prays his wonderful prayer at the end and says, Lord, I've done the work you gave me to do. And his prayer is all about these Twelve. He's praying not for the world. I pray for these that you've given to me. They were yours. You've given them to me. I've revealed you to them. I've shown them your glory. I've shown them your name. I, I, these are the ones. I pray for those who will believe through them because God is bringing a fresh flock with a fresh shepherd. God said, I will come down and I will be your shepherd. And he's calling a people to be shaped by his shepherding skill. A people who will come to know God in a fresh way. Not like the Pharisees and the contemporaries that he's coming to there. But this group that he's specially drawn to himself and is going to reveal his shepherding love to them. And so we see in this passage what he's doing with them. An extraordinary way in which he trains them. He's going to train them for ministry. They are going to be the twelve upon whom the whole of the church is laid upon. They're the foundation of the coming flock of God that's uh, going to come after the name of Jesus. I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here's this company that he's shaping. And it's interesting to see how he shapes them because we read here he sent them effectively into a storm. He sent them into a storm. It's interesting to take note of that. Uh, I went to Bible college to be trained. Uh, I never looked at my program and saw, oh, storm this week. Uh, it was usually lectures on Hebrews or whatever. But when Jesus trained guys, he sent them into a storm. And we often think, if I'm in a storm, I've lost the Lord. Where's the Lord? How did I get here? I've lost the Lord. I'm in a storm. But the fact that you're in a storm is no proof you've lost the Lord. They were there because he sent them there. And actually, to follow Jesus, there's no guarantee that you will avoid storms now. Jesus has this little flock in his hand, and he's training them and shaping them for what lies ahead. He's got purposes in their lives. Now, it's quite good for us, I think, to step back and say, well, why are we in this situation? We might ask of these 12 who are being shaped by Jesus, why, why is this happening to us? Well, actually... The context shows that they were being saved from something more dangerous than the storm. Jesus' popularity is giving him high profile, huge crowds gathering, and people are beginning to ask, could he be the one? Some are already shouting out, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Could this be the Son of David? Could this be the promised Messiah? Could this be the one? They've been waiting for this one who would come. But their image of what he will be like was very distorted. We can see in the Psalm of Solomon, which is not in our Bible, uh, where they were saying, bring your king, oh Lord, that you bring your Messiah to crush that Roman army. 
they had this thought, well, it'll be another one like David. David came on the scene when there was a defunct king called Saul, totally ineffectual. Well, they had one of those called Herod. And they remember that when David came on the scene and changed everything, took out Goliath, became a great king, great warrior, established Israel as a, as a mighty nation, indeed an empire, if you like, a tremendous force. And they were longing that their days of being under the Roman yoke might be ended, just as David ended the yoke of the Philistines. Oh, that he might be the one. They were having a very distorted view of what would the Messiah look like. He'd be another warrior, be like David. Not only would he be like David, it says in Deuteronomy 18.18, Moses said, there'll be another one like me. He'll be like me, he'll be like Moses. In what way? Well, Moses was an amazing shepherd. He took the whole flock of God through the wilderness. He fed them in the wilderness. And here we have Jesus feeding thousands. Thousands. 5,000 men, says women, children. D.A. Carson says probably 20,000. 20,000 get fed supernaturally. Another one like Moses, another one like David. Is he the one? Is he the one? And that's the background to this story. In fact, in John's account, in John 6.15, it says, intending to come and take him and make him king. The crowd were going to impose their agenda on Jesus. We will make him king. We'll, we'll force the issue. We'll bring him to that place. Now, of course, Jesus is free from that. He can easily withdraw. He knows his calling. His goal is to please the Father, to be focused on the call that's on his life. I have a baptism to be baptized with. He knew the way he was going. But the apostles really don't understand. These sheep haven't a clue, really. And, and they, they, they like the idea. Yeah, he could be king, and uh, we're with him. And it's like, uh, when you sit in your throne, can I sit on your right? Can I sit on your left? Even send their mother along. So the mother comes to Jesus. When you get on your throne, can my boy sit on your right? Your, my boy on your left? Yes, make him king. Make him king. And we're with him. We're with him. And Jesus, it says, took them and compelled. It says in the margin, I use the NASB. In the margin, it says, they, he compelled them into the boat. When the whole thing's beginning to look very attractive to these sheep, this shepherd says, get into the boat, oh, pushing around. Actually, it's a very dangerous thing we're going to come and see. But this was more dangerous, to be promoted into a place they weren't ready for. You can become a follower of Jesus overnight, but to become a man of God takes longer. The shaping of our lives. Jesus is training them for ministry. We're going to see in a moment that he sends them into a storm while he himself goes up into a mountain and is, as it were, missing. That's going to happen soon in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he's going to send this little flock and they're going to hit the Sanhedrin. This little flock that come from the north, come from Galilee, they're not city boys. And they meet the Sanhedrin with all their authority. How dare you preach in that way? They're going to hit storms. And Jesus isn't going to be there. They need training for that. They need to be prepared for what lies ahead. This is a serious training program. He's going to go up through into the heavens. Here he goes up into a mountain to pray. And they're in the storm, apparently alone. Actually, he's training them 
for what lies ahead. It takes pressure sometimes to make a man or woman of God. I remember reading years ago the story uh, of David, uh, a book by Alan Redpath, and it was called The Making of a Man of God. It takes time to make a man of God. It takes time. You think of David. David was suddenly promoted. He took out Goliath, this teenage boy, I guess, killed Goliath. He's, he's pulled by Saul into the palace. He's promoted. The girls start singing. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. And David's swishing through the palace and the girls are singing. And they're saying, oh, he's slain his ten. Oh, yes, I like you too. I'm sure he's doing very well. David's enjoying the whole thing. And then what's happening? Suddenly there's a spear coming out. I didn't sign up for spears to be thrown at Some of us put down our secular job sacrificially. I can't call it. People start throwing spears at us. What's that all about? David is following God. But suddenly it all goes ugly. Suddenly he's to run away. Suddenly he's in a cave with just a handful. He's no longer with the great army. He's no longer swishing through the palace. He's in God's training program. We find it similar with Joseph. Joseph, as a boy, gets an extraordinary revelation. That his brothers are going to bow down to him. Somehow there's kind of government on his shoulders. He's got a calling, a unique, amazing calling. Looks wonderful, but he's a bit obnoxious, isn't he? He says to his brothers, you're going to bow down to me. They say, thank you very much. And next thing, he's in a hole in the ground. It's like, wow, what happened? What on earth happened? What's going on? And then he's down in prison. He's in Potiphar's house, then he gets lied against. I mean, it's just not true, it's not fair. Why did this happen to me? Then he's in prison, they forget him. It's like every step is taking him further and further away from this promise, my brothers. Being bowed down, now I'm in another country, they don't even speak the same language. I mean, the promise is fading, it would seem. But every step is bringing him one more step close to where God wants him. So I'm going to take one more step. Pharaoh just needs a dream. Beloved, we don't often know the plan, the program, the shepherding. It takes a lot of confidence, a lot of trust. They're all saying, I trust you, Lord. I don't enjoy this program much. It's not what I would have chosen. I'd rather be sitting with my notepad. This is tough. So it happens. It's happening to these. He sends them into a storm. Okay, so it's it's planned pressure. He sent them into it, just like he sent Joseph into it. The wonderful thing, wonderful thing about Joseph is that when he's in prison, he doesn't let go of the promise. So that at the end, when a brother, a guy comes in and says, I've had a dream. Joseph doesn't say, yeah, I used to have dreams. Forget it, dreams. This is what happened to me. <laughs> Joseph says, tell me your dream. <clears throat> He still believes. He's still clinging to the promise. Tell me your dream. Like, it's wonderful victory. Tell me your dream. No, I forget dreams. I just have dreams. <coughs> Are you clinging to what God's given you? You're holding on to the promises? Maybe difficult. It's where these things get tested and tried. It was planned pressure. So being in a storm, some of you may be in a storm. I felt God impressing this on my heart. I prayed very much 
that God would bless this word to us. He knows if you're in a storm, he sent them into a storm. A storm is no proof you've lost the will of God. It's no proof you've lost, because that's what we think. I've lost God, I'm in a storm. David's having spears thrown at him. God's training program. And obedience to Christ is no guarantee that you won't hit storms. So it's painful. They're in the middle of the lake, it says. The lake is 13 miles long, seven and a half miles wide. There's no easy way out. Right? So we live in a generation which likes to opt out. If it's pressure, opt out. Move out of it. Change your job. Change this. Change that. Change your wife. Get out of it. Get out of the situation. <laughs> if you think like me, you, you watch television, you've got the remote control there, and there's the advert. You think, oh, what's on the other channel? I don't much like this. You know, your wife says, aren't we watching the island? Change it. Change the story. And sometimes we just wish, if I could press the button and change it. But it happens when they're in the middle of the lake, and there's no easy way out. It's not like they're just going to get onto the lake and, hey, look, there's a storm coming. They're in the middle of the lake. There's no easy way out. Some of us get into situations like that. We think, well, we can't get out because she has to work as well as me. Otherwise, financially, we can't make it. Uh, why don't you do it when we can't? Well, perhaps you should check when we can't. The house, I mean, we're locked in. We get into situations like that sometimes. We think there's no way, there's no alternative. That's one of the painful things about it. I can't see a way out. Then we see this the wind was against them, circumstances were hostile, they're being blown backwards. Then it's to say they were straining at the oars. And again, in the NASB, it says they were harassed in rowing. And uh, in the margin, it says this, they were harassed and battered by the waves, verse 24. And it says in the margin, tormented. is the same word that's used, same Greek word that's used when people are tormented by evil spirits. They're tormented by the waves. They're tormented by the experience. And that can happen to us, dear friends, that the storm gets out of the lake and gets in here. So, you know, you're awake at night thinking about it. You can't sleep because you're getting tormented by it. It's like, it's like, it's the devil doing something here. Sometimes we start asking questions like that. What's happening? What's happening? It's, It's the devil after me. What's happening to me? So the storm out of the lake gets right into their hearts. That's where they're being sent. And it's quite prolonged. It says Jesus came to them in the fourth watch. Well, apparently the fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. I imagine Jesus sent them on the lake late afternoon, perhaps. So we're talking some hours. It's, that's, that's the cry of the psalmist often, isn't it? How long? Oh, Lord. When's this going to end? When's this going to end? How long do we have to put up with this? We get the Lazarus cry, if only you'd turn that off. Why didn't you come? But then it's also really purposeful. It's important to see it's purposeful. 
Peter says this, and Peter was in the boat, don't forget. Peter writes this later. He's being trained. He's being shepherded through this whole experience, and later he himself becomes a shepherd. Jesus says to him, now you feed my sheep. You feed my lambs. Peter's been through the training. He says this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing were happening to you. Sometimes we come to Christ or we make a major step like, I'm leaving my job, I'm going to serve God. And we didn't anticipate that that's going to mean trouble. We thought, well, Lord, I'm making this big sacrifice for you. It's a strange, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's like, you know, get in the ring with Tyson. You know, hey, he hit me. Hey, Tyson hit me. You say, well, you're lucky he didn't bite your ear off. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, don't be surprised. And sometimes it's the surprise that throws us. We think, I didn't expect it to be like this. I thought church would be a sweet place to be. I've come out of the hostile, secular world, and I didn't expect this. 1 Peter 1 says, Now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials, These have come that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may prove to be genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There is a kind of crucible that's happening, testing, something that's going to bring God glory ultimately. And he knows how long to make it last. I remember some years ago, I was speaking at a conference, what we used to call the Stonely Bible Week, and I preached, a, I was very fascinated by a word in Isaiah, when it talks about he made me a polished arrow. And it speaks about he hid me in his quiver, and so on. I got the whole image of an arrow. And I remember preaching on it, I remember saying, you're an arrow, used to have a different life, it was a branch in a tree. I know for myself, when I became a Christian, I, I kind of... I came from a completely pagan world. I had no Christian background at all. And I was told you can ask Jesus into your heart, which is a fascinating thought. Uh, a bit different to what happened in the Bible. but So I, I just asked Jesus into my heart, because I'd never heard before. You could have your sins forgiven. You could know you're going to heaven. You could know God as your father. I mean, it's just that, wow, no, one, no one's ever told me this before. And I asked Jesus into my heart. And I, I, felt, I felt born again. I felt, I felt hey, it's happened. But really, I kind of stayed in my tree. And I, I'm like a branch in the tree. And I said, Lord Jesus, come in. And it's like I said to all the other idols, move over, Jesus is coming in. It wasn't like Jesus said to Peter, come and follow me. Or to Matthew, follow me. Or to Abraham, leave the Ur of the Chalice, come. And, and, and it came to me, yeah, an arrow used to be a branch. And there comes a point when you cut it out so it can have a new identity. And sadly, dear friends, we have people in our ranks who've never quite heard that radical come out. They've asked Jesus to come in. And they stay in their tree. At least I did. Still drawing on that sap. Peter talks about that futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers. I was still there drinking in all the trash, and Jesus is in there with me. It came later for me, a real frightening call, come out. 
When you come out, you start cutting off all those twigs and leaves. You think, ouch, ouch, that's me. I'm losing all my friends. I'm losing what's happening. Things are being cut off, cut off. You see, if you say to a branch, how'd you like to fly? Imagine your branch saying, what's flight? How about speed through the air? What's speed through the air? How about hitting a target? What's a target? You can't even think in the dimension God wants to get you in unless you come out and take on a new identity. Anyway, God gave this whole thing about quivers and arrowheads and feathers and stuff. And I, I preached it. I felt God gave me a word. And funny enough, a few weeks later, I was in Kansas City and I preached the same sermon again. Now, at the end of it, a man came up to me. He said, I enjoyed your sermon. I said, well, thank you very much. He said, he said, I make arrows. That's my job. <laughs> so I said, oh, really? He said, you might be interested to know some of the process. I said, yeah, tell me. And he said, well, we take the branches and we have a machine and it has kind of troughs and you put each branch in a little trough through this machine. And then he said, then we pour water through. So each one is lying in water. And then we put the lid down and then we turn the heat up. I said, yeah. He said, we, ha we know exactly how long to leave it in the heat. He said, because if we take it out too soon, when you're trying to take that sort of coating off of the, bran the branch, you kind of cut into it, you, you damage it. If it's not long enough, then that outer casing hasn't broken up. So we can't take it out too quickly. And he said, we don't leave it in too long, because if we leave it in too long, the, the wood on the inside would pulp up and you've lost it completely. So he said, we know exactly how long to leave it in the heat. So I thought you might be interested. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm interested. Beloved, don't you think perhaps God knows how long to leave us? We're thinking, Lord, how long? How long? And he knew precisely what he was doing. God knows what he's doing with us. He's a wonderful shepherd. He's got his eye on us. He knows how to care for his sheep. He wants to bring forth a fresh kind of flock, a believing flock. He didn't come just down to pat Israel on the head. He came to bring forth a believing company and to create a company of believers in God again. People who look like children of Abraham. People who really put their confidence in God. Even when it's tested and tried like Abraham's was. They say, yes, we believe God. A completely different kind of community. And all around the world's got, got a flock like that. He's raising up people. The church in China, you hear their stories, they, wow, they just kept believing. God wants such a people. He doesn't want us just living in our tree, just giving us. He wants to call us out. Come on, flock of God. Come and follow me. Follow me. Jesus then sent them into the storm. The greatest fear is Jesus doesn't know what's happening to me. <coughs> and that's what Satan will say to you. God doesn't know, or God doesn't care. If he knows, he can't do anything. You're, you're, you're out of his focus. 
That's where Satan was so dangerous when he comes and suggests that to us. And says, look, he doesn't know about it. Because the darkness had come, but Jesus hadn't. And you can feel like that sometimes. You feel, well, it's just dark, and where's Jesus? But then this wonderful story, it says, Jesus comes to them. And notice this, we can, we can think he came in response to their prayer. No, actually he starts coming before they pray. He's in the mountain, and surely this is symbolic. Surely it is training. He's gone up, as it were, into the heavens while they're in the storm. And rather than not being able to see them, he sees them perfectly. Now when you think about it, it must have been pitch black. You wouldn't have lighting over Galilee, no floodlights. It's totally dark. And yet he sees them, he comes to them. And we read in Hebrews, I love what it says in Hebrews 4. It says, we have a great priest, a great high priest, who's passed through the heavens. He's gone up the mountain. We have a great priest. Jesus was in the mountain. He was praying. He was praying. He's gone up the mountain. We have a great priest who has passed through the heavens. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. There's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of whom, of him with whom we have to do. Everything's open to him. He can see in the dark. He can see not just the boat tossing and turning, he can see into their hearts. Beloved, he can see into your heart. He knows what you're feeling, he knows what you're experiencing. We have such a great priest who knows perfectly what you're feeling at the moment. And he comes to them. He comes to them. Now it's extraordinary, actually. When he comes, they're more scared when he comes than they were before. It says Jesus came and they cried out. It's a ghost. I wonder why they said it's a ghost. Well, we know when Jesus was transfigured, when he was with those disciples on another occasion, and was transfigured before them. His whole appearance changed. I wonder how often Jesus, when he was alone with the Father, I wonder often if his appearance changed. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But he came down the mountain, having been with his Father, and just kept walking. <laughs> this amazing shepherd. Down the mountain and kept walking and walked on the sea, walked on the storm, came to them on the storm, and they scared out of their lives. It's a ghost. They saw something that they couldn't understand. And then you get these wonderful words from Jesus Don't be afraid. It is I. It is I. Now that's grammatically correct. We tend to say, it's me. It is I. But if you look at the Greek, it says, don't be afraid. Ego, I am. I am. I am. In this storm, they're going to get a revelation of Christ such as they've never had. I am. This is God coming to them. The Lord became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt amongst them. They're going to get a revelation of Jesus in the pain and the storm. He's coming to them. Jesus often used that ego, I am. When he said the I am's, I am. 
the true vine, the authentic vine. I am, I am, each time. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am. He said, if you don't believe I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was, not I was, but I am. In Gethsemane, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, he stood up and said, I am. And they all fell over. These manifestations of Christ, the God who can walk on the seas, he comes to them. He comes to them because they're his sheep. They're his responsibility. Beloved, this is such a wonderful privilege to know. If he pushed that boat off, he said, go. He compelled them to get into the boat. If he pushed that boat off, they're his responsibility. If you have followed Jesus, if you got into this situation because you're following Jesus, you're his responsibility. He doesn't walk away. He says, oh, well, shame, got in the storm. No, I sent them. They're my responsibility. So he comes to them. He will come to those whom he has sent. He will manifest himself to you. He will keep his faithful promise. He will work it out. God will do that. It is I. And yet the wonder of it for us is this, that the God who says, I am, it's I, it's I. Somehow we can say, don't be scared, it's me. That familiarity we have, it's, it's Jesus. Yes, it's God. It's Jesus. He's with us. It's a wonderful, wonderful privilege we can have. And this is God who came into our world. One last thing before I close. Look at Simon Peter. Simon Peter's learned a thing or two. <laughs> he doesn't jump off the boat. He doesn't say, if it's you, I'm coming. He said, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Tell me to come to you. He understands this, that if Jesus says it, he'll be able to do it. Jesus has said several things to them. They're learning. We'll look at that a bit more tomorrow. But when Jesus says things, he's drawing you into a life of faith and engaging with a God who can do things that you can't do. What it says to a man, stretch forth your arm. He says, that's my problem, I can't. That's a bit cruel, isn't it, to say to a man with a withered arm, stretch forth. The fact is this, when he says stretch forth, you can. That's the wonder. We know someone, when he says do it, we can. Something you can't do, he says do it, and you can. That's what ministry is all about. He's chosen the weak things. He's chosen the foolish things. How many times have I come back to that verse? I've worked my way through this chapter. Lord, you, came, you said you called the foolish things. Here I am. I volunteer again. You didn't choose many wise. Well, look, you're stuck with me. But you called me. You promised. You promised. <laughs> We're his responsibility. And when he says, do it. So Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. One word. I think it's elte in Greek. Come. And with one word, the powers of gravity are broken. With one word, the Creator has made it possible for this guy to walk on water. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks to a hand's distance to Jesus. It's amazing. He walks in a different world. 
He writes later in Second Peter, he says, through the great precious promises, we've escaped the corruption that's in the world. And we've become partakers of the divine nature. These words are full of power. We've escaped the downward tide. Peter can write that later. We've escaped. We're partakers of the divine nature. We can do things you couldn't do about. He's done it for us. So Peter, he steps out. I love the NIV. It says, give us everything we need for life and godliness. He's walking in a new kind of way. He's walking towards Jesus. And then he sees the waves. It says he sees the winds, but we know what that means. He sees the waves. And he feels the tug of the wind. And he begins to sink. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, well done. None of the others tried it. Look, they're all laughing, but they didn't try it. They didn't get out of the boat. You did. And anyway, Peter, it's hard to know where you put your foot down, isn't it? No, he doesn't say any of those things at all. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, you little faith. A bit harsh, isn't it? You little faith. He walked on water to Jesus. You little faith. Jesus having a grumpy day? Got Jesus in a bad mood? No, Jesus is the radiance of the Father. He's never in a bad mood. He's the truth. Peter, I'm speaking the truth to you. You little faith. It's the truth. So you would expect Jesus to be more gentle than that. Gentle Jesus. But beloved, he's shepherding us that we might be sons with him. We might grow. We might take on his likeness. Learn of his courage. Learn his trust in the Father. That he lived an amazing life of trust in the Father. Even going to the cross, trust in the Father. He lived that. He's calling his flock, come and live like me. I'm not just a shepherd who leaves you where you are and just gives you a little blessing here and there. I'm calling you into a new life. I'm saying, follow me. Follow me. Come into a new kind of world. Yes, it will be tough. I'm going to train you in the difficulty. I'll call you into a new kind of life. You can escape the corruption that's in the world. You can walk in a new way. And then he says, why did you doubt? Greek word distatso has the sort of sense of two. What did, it's like, did you look two ways? You're looking at me, now you're looking at the waves. I believe this, I'm sure we all do. If he had kept looking into the eyes of Jesus, I don't believe he would have sunk. We agree? <laughs> I'm sure if he kept focused on Jesus, he wouldn't have sunk. But he didn't. He, got his, he started looking around. And this is the deal. He's saying, I want to shape you up. I want to bring you to a place of confidence. I want to train you to be my flock. Follow me. The good shepherd 
goes before the sheep. Not just always into cosy places, sometimes into tough places. But it's never by chance. And they didn't realize with all they were going through, to stay where they were was much more dangerous. Yeah, we could be on your right hand. We could be on your left hand. Come on, make him king. Don't make him king. Yes, we're in on this. No, you're nowhere near ready for that. You're nowhere near ready for that. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say one of the most dangerous things is rapid promotion for people who are not ready. Not ready for that. God's got his ways of training us, bringing us through, because he's after something. He wants to produce in us a faith that keeps its eyes on him and doesn't yield to fear, ultimately. And especially for us, beloved, who have the responsibility of looking after the flock of God. And sometimes, dear friends, you go through things for the sake of the people. I've heard that over the years. Like, well, why am I going through this? And sometimes then you're, you're talking with some person, you're sharing with someone, maybe you're preaching, but maybe it's one-to-one, and you think, yeah, I know what that's like. Been there. So Paul can say, so we can comfort you with the comfort that we've received. Jesus said, for their sake, I sanctify myself. Sometimes leaders go through more pressure, not just for your sake, but so you're more equipped to feed and serve the flock that God gives us. So let's not be scared. We're in the storm. I've lost God. No, 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 I haven't lost God. Exactly in the centre of his will. He can't see me. No, he sees perfectly well. There's nothing hidden from him. All things are open and laid bare. And he hasn't abandoned them. He comes to them with a new revelation of who he is. They might know him better. And when it's his time, he ends the storm. His time. I love that verse in Revelation. It says, you will be in prison for ten days. Why are we in prison at all? I'm a Christian. What am I in prison for? It says in Revelation, you'll be in prison for ten days. Let's say this. Let every demon in hell try and make it eleven days, and he can't. It'll be ten days. God knows what's happening. Should we have confidence in him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would have no other shepherd but you. We're so grateful that you snatched us away from other things we were following, other value systems, sometimes other people. We gave them our allegiance. We were blind and ignorant. Father, thank you so much for interrupting our foolishness and calling us to follow Jesus. Lord, we just pray for one another this this evening. We pray for any here, Lord, who are just saying, how long is this going to last? Lord, some who are suffering, a real sense we're in a storm. Lord, may these few days away, these few hours away, be hours of revelation, hours where we focus afresh on you, when we get in our cars and drive away from here is with a fresh certainty 
a new confidence, a determination to keep trusting you. Help us, Lord. Help us as we pray with one another, talk with one another. Jesus, draw near, we pray. You wonderful shepherd of the sheep, will you come amongst us? Thank you for the way you trained these men. Thank you that they had such clarity and courage by the time you'd finished your training program. Let it be true of us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.